Well, I should warn you about uh, this as we go into this portion of our service together. There's a couple things you should know about me and about our church. First off, we really, really believe in this book. We believe it's the Word of God and that it's uh, an incredible thing. And so there's actually a passage in here that says, all of this is God-breathed. And that word all is pretty important to me. You'll see that in just a moment. We're going to be in Isaiah, which is maybe an obscure place to be on a Christmas Eve morning. We really do believe that this whole thing is significant, and so we go to all kinds of different places in here to learn from it. But then that passage actually goes on to say it's profitable for a lot of different reasons, and so that informs even the way that we do our church services and our Christmas Eve services. We, I will read from this. We'll put verses up on the screen. Um, we'll read the whole passage together, then we'll actually go through it together, and we'll seek to explain what it says here and then apply what it means for us today. So you don't mind, go ahead and try to track down a Bible. We're in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, again, we will put it up on the screen so you don't have to do this, but Isaiah chapter 40 in the Bibles that we would have here, that would be on page 619, 619. Um, Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the, wild a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Let's pray. Lord, we are asking right now as we've opened your word that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. We're praying, God, that we could hear your voice loud and clear and that you would incline our hearts to recognize the significance of the sending of your Son. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. You might be thinking, Cor, I just read that with you. I have no idea what that has to do with Christmas. Uh, it's kind of a bizarre passage. But I want to show you something. Uh, Isaiah has introduced to us these concepts about who Jesus is. In fact, you'll be familiar with this one. It's a famous one probably seen it around, you've probably heard it, but Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, and this is much earlier in the book, but Isaiah introduced this concept. He said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Obviously, this is no ordinary child. I have two of my own, 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. I love those kids dearly. I actually think they're pretty exceptional, but I would never say this of them, right? You are, Harrison, you are my wonderful counselor. He might give me some counsel. I'm not sure it would be wonderful. It'd probably be weird. But this child that Isaiah introduces us to, he's different. He is a, he's this one that is expected, and the government will be on his shoulders. He is this child that is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah has this concept, though he is speaking hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, he's speaking with, with an awareness of faith, pointing forward to that reality of who Jesus is and what he will be and do for us. And so Isaiah continues throughout his ministry to give us ideas of what the effect of this child will be. And that's what we find in chapter 40. We find the effect of his ministry, and we find four things here that I want to show you. I'll list them off for you, then we'll work our way through them. Christmas is about comfort. It's about glory. It's about permanence. And it's about presence with a C, not the kind you open, though Harrison were in here, he'd get really excited. He would perk up at that one. It's, it's about a word of comfort. It reveals the glory of God. It offers us a permanent solution in which we can put our hope, and it brings us the presence of God. Let's get to work. Verses 1 and 2, the comfort. Christmas is a word of comfort. Verse 1 says, comfort, my, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah is recognizing that the people need this word of consolation. They, they are going through a very difficult thing, and so God now is speaking over them his word of comfort. And this is actually so surprising that um, some people have a hard time with the book of Isaiah. In fact, some, some have suggested this can't be the same dude. They read verses, uh, chapters 1 through 39, and kind of how grumpy he sounded, and the word of judgment, and the warning, and all these different things. And then you come to chapter 40, and the whole tone of the book changes. And so people are like, maybe it was two different authors, and then an editor spliced it together. And people can't really understand, like, why, why is it that the, the whole tone of the book changes? And my answer is very simple. It's the good news of the gospel. It's what God has done in the sending of his son. The reason why you can go from judgment to grace with such an abrupt turn is because of what Christ has done. And the good news of the gospel, when it comes in power, it just changes the conversation. When the good news of the gospel comes, it can actually change people on the spot. And that's what I think is going on. Isaiah is beginning to discern what this child is going to do for us. And so God is giving this word of consolation to his people who are suffering. And his people are going through some very, very difficult things. But God is now comforting them. And even the tone of his communication reflects that. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Even the, the, the way in which the communication event is happening now reflects the compassion of God. He is tenderly speaking to his people. And then he says, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here are a few different implications that I want you to recognize. Number one, the people are experiencing discomfort. You don't tell somebody comfort, comfort, unless, of course, they're uncomfortable. So he's looking at these people, and historically, they really are in a desperate situation. They've been wiped out. But now God is saying, I have 
a message of consolation for you. I have a word of comfort. Another thing to note is that these people had rejected their God and they are suffering the consequences. Isaiah has been warning them all along, be careful not to neglect your God. Uh, Chapters 1 through 39, that's a big part of his message. It's a big part of all the prophetic authors. They all have this one word in common, return, or the biblical word, repent. Don't neglect God, turn to him. And if you don't, there will be consequences for that, and we find that here. We find that the people have rejected God, and they're suffering on account of it. And that's the second implication that we find here. But here's the surprising thing. Even though that is the case, God is not done. God is not washing his hands of this people. He's not done with them. In fact, just the opposite. He's speaking tenderly to them, and he's making a way for them to have a hope and a future. He's atoning for their sin. Says their sins have been paid for. How does that happen? Because the Bible tells us there's only one way to atone for sin, and it's a, a sacrificial offering. And Isaiah actually will find this out later in chapter 53. There's one coming a servant of God, who will bear our iniquities and he will pay for our transgressions and it's by his wounds that we're healed. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus who is willing to do that for us. That's the good news of the gospel that God loves us and though we often reject God, he's not done with us. He loves us enough to send his son to try to win us back to him. And Jesus was willing to go to the cross and suffer and die, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be with God forever. So this word of comfort is one that's founded in the good news of the gospel. So the first word that we have here is a word of comfort. And and I will be honest with you, this is an important word. It's an important word for our congregation. As I look around and I think about the different things that we are currently facing, the health concerns that are happening, the the, uh, broken relationships that are are happening within our congregation. There's pain and there's hurt and there's disappointment. There's hardness and, and difficulty. And God is able to say, I have a word of consolation for you. Christmas helps us to feel that, to recognize God is caring for us and he has a good and gracious plan. Well, the second thing that we find here is this idea of glory in verses 3 to 5. Christmas reveals to us the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever experienced glory before. I was thinking about um, visiting the Grand Canyon. If you go to the Grand Canyon and you think, okay, I have, I have some imaginations of what that would be. I have some ideas. I've seen pictures. Uh, and then you go there and you stand on the edge of that thing and all of a sudden you're just overwhelmed. You just see the magnitude of it and you're like, oh, I had some ideas of it. I didn't think it'd feel like this. And you look at that thing and you're just overwhelmed because that thing is so majestic and so glorious. You feel it in your soul. And that's what we're dealing with here. There's this idea that God is revealing to us his glory, meaning we're going to see something that's so profound, so weighty, so magnificent that it takes our breath away, that we see the glory of God and it affects us profoundly. But listen to this, verse 3, we're supposed to talk about it. It says, a voice of one calling, so proclaim this thing. You'll see this uh, throughout the entirety of this passage. Proclaim this thing, verse 3, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, it's saying, get ready. God is coming. Get ready. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is coming to town. He's going to show us his glory. What's that going to be like? It's going to feel like a natural disaster. 
When God comes to town, it is going to be very, very unsettling, which is what verse 4 is talking about. It says, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. It'd be like looking at the Appalachian mountain range or the Rocky Mountains and these huge, formidable mountains vanish. They're gone. They just come down, and then the low places are elevated. Now, God is not actually concerned here with topography. He's not just like, hey, I care about mountains and valleys and stuff. This is spiritual language. It's, it's a metaphor saying that when God comes to town, it's going to be very, very upsetting. You've got these things that seem so formidable and important, and those are going to be brought low. And then you've got these lowly things, and those are going to be exalted. Those are going to be lifted up. Now, where did this ministry come true in real time? John the Baptist. If you guys are familiar, right before the public ministry of Jesus, there was a, uh, a forerunner to him, somebody, who, somebody else who was doing ministry, and his name was John the Baptist. He was out in the desert wilderness, baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Jesus said of him, who did you go out to see? Who did you go out to see in the desert? And he quotes Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah about John, and he says, you, you went out to see this individual who was a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And what was the ministry of John the Baptist? It was a, it was a leveling ministry. You've got the religious leaders, the spiritually, spiritually elite, the, the rule followers, the ones who read their Bibles and try to pay attention to all the details of it and try to tell other people all these different things, and they're being brought low. And then you've got the spiritually impoverished, the lowly, the unlikely people, and in the ministry of John the Baptist, they're being lifted up. That's the good news of the gospel, that it takes what we think it is important and it brings it low, and then it lifts up that which is incredible, and that is the lowly. And that's what's happening. When God shows up, that comes true. And it's still true today. There's a lot of holier-than-thou people, and that's not impressive to God. The, the, the proud will be humbled. The lowly will be exalted. That's the economy of God's grace. And look at what happens, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Christmas reveals to us the glory of God. His glory will be revealed, and we will have one of those Grand Canyon moments where we see and we're overwhelmed. We see and we are overwhelmed with the magnitude of this thing. And it actually happened, by the way. I'm going to show it to you now. We'll put it up on the screen. When Jesus is born in the, in the Christmas narrative, Luke chapter 2, his parents, Mary and Joseph, eventually bring him to the temple. It was something that they had to do. It was their religious thing, their religious uh, you know, experience. And so they bring this child to the temple. And we're told that there's an individual there named Simeon and Simeon is a devout follower of God. This is Luke chapter 2. And what it tells us in, in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2 is this man has been waiting for, uh, we'll put it up on the screen, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Where have we heard that before? Well, that's Isaiah 40 verse 1. Simeon is waiting his whole life for this moment. He's read Isaiah before, and so he's, he's living his life for this purpose. I'm waiting for the consolation of Israel, for God to comfort his people. I'm waiting for that promise to come true. So Mary and Joseph are there, and Simeon lays eyes on them, and he goes to them, and he actually takes the, the baby in his arms, baby Jesus in his arms, and he says some very, very incredible things. I actually want to 
Let's read it to you because it's so profound. But he says this in verses 29 and following. This is Simeon. And what he's essentially saying is, my life is complete. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. The, the bucket list item that he has, the thing that if he were doing his, uh, you know, his annual goals, this is it. I want to see the consolation of Israel in my, in my life. And now he's holding this child and he says, Sovereign Lord, just like you promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The saving work of God, and he's holding a child going, this is salvation. I've now seen it. The salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and listen, the glory of your people Israel. He's holding a baby and he's having that Grand Canyon moment. He's saying, my life is complete because now I'm beholding glory. I'm seeing the glory of your people Israel. I'm holding this child and this is more than just an ordinary child. This is wonderful counselor. This is mighty God. This is everlasting Father. This is Prince of Peace. This is the glory of God as he holds this child. And the parents are like, what on earth is happening? They're marveling at this thing, at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against and so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He, he says, Isaiah stuff. This is the kid that's going to change everything. There's going to be some religious elite people, and they're going to come low. And there's going to be some lowly people, and they're going to be exalted. And this is the kid that's going to make it come true. So we see glory. When we think about Christmas and we recognize who this child is, we should feel the weight of God's glory in him. As we get up tomorrow morning and we're celebrating, we should be thinking through the glory of God has been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, we see this idea of permanence in verses 6 to 8. Christmas offers us a permanent solution. And here's, here's what, I'm, what I'm getting at. There are so many different things that we put our hope in that will not last. But God has a plan that will allow us to place our hope in something that will endure for forever. But the problem that, that Isaiah and his contemporaries have, and the one that so plagues us today, is we, we have a tendency to think that human beings can solve our biggest problems. And so we often put our hope in individuals and leaders or in political allegiances. So for Isaiah, um, you know, they, they would think, if we just had a good leader, if we had a good king, we'd be okay. Israel would be great. We'd be, we'd be happy. We'd be comfortable. We'd be good. But when they would have them, they didn't last. So for instance, Uzziah was a good king, but what happened to him? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, one of the long-standing kings who was a good king, he died. But what happened in that moment? Isaiah gets to see God in his, in his temple, gets to see the glory of the Lord. God says, I know your king died. I'm still on my throne. It's going to be okay. Or Hezekiah, another good king. We look to these human individuals thinking they could solve our biggest problems or the allegiances that the Israelites were tempted to make with, okay, if we can get the right superpower on our team, we'll be okay. If we can get Egypt, or if we can get Babylon, or if we can get, and they keep drawing on these different people. And God says, if you put your hope in something like that, it's not going to make it. Listen to it here. It says, a, a voice 
says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely, the people are grass. You look at all the human strength that we can muster, and God says, that is temporary. That's like your lawn. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. It's like grass that withers and fades. It's like a flower that blossoms, but then it it fades quickly. And he says, that's the human element that you're putting your hope in. There's a better way. There's a better way, and he makes the contrast here as he goes on to say in verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God, the word of our God, endures forever. You want something that's going to last? Trust in the promises of God. You want something that's temporary? Trust in a human solution. God is saying there is a way to have hope in something that will endure for forever. The famous author, C.S. Lewis, he put it like this. Don't let your happiness be in something you might lose. I've been doing ministry since 2002. It's kind of weird to even say that. Doing different ministry in different ways. But one of the things that I've noticed consistently throughout all those years is that everyone is looking for a way to be happy. And we're placing our hope and our trust in all these different things. And what I can say is, if it's not the promise of God, it's going to disappoint you. If it's not the promises of God that you're finding your ultimate hope in, you're going to be disappointed. Whatever ambition you might have, you know, as we turn to our New Year's resolutions and we think, these are the things, these, this is going to make me happy in 2024. Whatever those things are, they're not going to give you the happiness that your heart really longs for. You were made for God, and until you place your hope and your faith in him, everything else will disappoint in some measure at some point. But God is telling us there is a way to experience happiness that is permanent. And it is because of the work that he's done in the sending of his son, we can have hope that will last for all of eternity. Well, finally, presence, verses 9 to 11. Christmas brings us into the presence of God. Christmas brings us into the presence of God. Verses 9 and following, it says, You who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say these things. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Notice, and it's been traveling through this entire paragraph, notice that there's an emphasis on saying things, proclaiming. It's telling us that we need to actually declare this thing. We need to publish this good news. Back then, they didn't have cable news outlets where they could just turn on a TV and find out what's going on. They didn't have Twitter feeding them all the information of the things that are going on around them. They had heralds, people who would go into the town court and they would lift up their voices to let people know the the noteworthy things that are going on. And God says here, this is news. This is good news. So you need to lift your voice up and make it known. You need to tell people about this thing. Go up on a mountain, bring good news, lift up your voice, do not be afraid, tell people what's going on here. And this is one of the reasons why this morning we've chosen to do our service this way. You might be thinking, dude, this is a Christmas Eve service. Why don't you talk a lot less? And why don't we just sing a lot more carols? That'd be more fun. Then we can get on to our parties. Um, But the Bible reminds us that we have a message. We have something to declare. God is doing something that is good news. We lift up our voices because we recognize what God is up to. And the clear messaging here in verses 9 to 11 is that God is drawing near to us. 
It's saying, lift up your voice and say to the town of Judah, behold your God. Look at what God is doing. He is here. God is drawing our attention to the fact that at Christmas, he is coming near to us. Isaiah, much earlier in his ministry, uh, in chapter 7, it reads like this. It says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. And in the Christmas narrative, an angel visits a young woman and says, you're her. You're the one, the virgin, who's going to conceive and have a son. You will name him Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas story is the story of God saying, I'm here. And so we lift up our voices and we say, behold your God. Look at this child in the manger and recognize that this is God's visitation to us. He has come near to us and he is drawing us near to himself. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. God is coming and he is powerful and he is saving. He, he, his reward is us. We are the fruit of his ministry. He is, he, he is bringing his recompense with him. And what is it like to live under his leadership? What is it like for him to rule and to reign? Because some of us are resistant to the ways of God, thinking that would be a bad choice for me to follow God and to be under his leadership and to allow him to have the final say. I like to be the captain of my own life. But what is it like to be under his leadership? Look at verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. There's, there's a sweet, compassionate leadership in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, he knows us. He looks at our frailty. He looks at our hopes and our ambitions. He looks at who we are, and he says, I know exactly how to care for you. I know exactly how to look after you. He gathers us. He draws us close to his heart. He gently leads us. It's beautiful. This child... Jesus of Nazareth would grow up and and in his ministry he would say this I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the kind of leader who looks at us and he knows everything that's going on and he says I know exactly what they need and I'm willing to do whatever it costs for them to experience blessing. And he was willing to go to the cross and suffer and die so we could be brought near to him. The Christmas message is the message of the glory of God coming near. We get the, the presence of God. Behold your God. So as we conclude here, let me just remind us where we've been. Christmas gives us the hope of God's comfort. It's a word of consolation for, the, for those who are hurting, and many of us are, and we're grateful for God's ministry of consolation and comfort. Christmas reveals to us the glory of God. We see something that overwhelms our soul. It gives us something that we can hope in for all of eternity. The promise endures. And finally, it reminds us of the ultimate aim of the human experience, which is we were made by God and for God. And he wants us to be with him for forever. And through Jesus Christ, that has been made available to us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, as we've opened your word, we're praying that by your spirit, you would continue to minister to us in these moments. We're praying, God, that you would reveal your glory to us in in this holiday. Lord, help us to recognize that this is about your son, and your son is the glory of Israel. 
Lord, help us to recognize the beauty of what he's done in his life and ministry and his sacrificial death, atoning for our sins and the invitation that he makes to us so that we could come near to him. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So, Lord, I pray that everyone in here would place their faith in him for their salvation and they would experience the glory of Christmas. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.